Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Exodus. I guess it's week five. We were trying to figure out. So week six or week five, but I think it's week five, so... <laughs> it's, yeah, that's what it says on the paper. We're just going to go with that, whether it is or not, right? Yeah, it's great to see you all again. Let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll talk about Exodus. Lord, we thank you for this chance once again to open up your word and to study. I thank you for those who have gathered here, Lord, and um, the effort they made this evening to come out and to study your word. Lord, there are all sorts of things that we could do with our evenings tonight. Uh, And I pray that you would be honored and glorified through our stopping in the middle of our week to try to understand you better. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here and now, that you would do more than just fill our minds with information, but that you would truly change and transform our hearts. Lord, will you do something in us as we understand the victory and salvation that you brought through the Exodus. Will you help us to catch a bigger vision for who you are and for what you've done? And will you allow those realities to work themselves out into what we do even tonight and tomorrow morning and the rest of this week? Lord, we want to be people who honor you in all that we do. And so, We pray now that you would teach us. We submit ourselves humbly before you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do this and ask your blessing on our studies. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get started, I wanted to do two things. First of all, I want to finish up our conversation last week about the Passover lamb. So that's... Item number one on the agenda. Item number two is then, uh, I want to answer a few of the questions that you all had written down. If you all have additional questions that you think of and you want to write those down, feel free to give those to me after the session tonight and we can uh, talk about those some next week. But I'll address the questions that were submitted last week, um, some of those, and then we'll jump into what's on your sheet for tonight. Okay, so... Last time, we had really finished our discussion of Exodus chapter 12, but we were left with this question of of what's the significance of the Passover lamb? What are we supposed to do with this idea of the Passover lamb, especially as we start to think about how the rest of the Old Testament uses it, and then how the New Testament uses it. Well, if you remember, at the end of our time last week, we kind of traced this theme of the Passover lamb throughout the Old Testament itself. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we have a reference in Exodus chapter 12 to this is what you should do with the Passover lamb. Make sure that you don't break any of its bones. Same thing is said in Numbers chapter 9 once again. Don't break any of the Passover lamb's bones. Then you have David in Psalm chapter 34, once again saying, don't break any of its bones, but this time he's actually talking about himself, which seems a little bit strange to us. 
But I think the reality is David is doing what I would consider as typology. Okay? Now, maybe you've heard this in church before, this word typology or type, but let me define it in this way. A type is something in the Old Testament that I think has uh, three basic, meets three basic criteria. Okay? And, you know, because I teach Old Testament, this is just, just what I do. So you have to put up with the cheesy acronyms. Okay? So we're just going to go with old. Okay? So the first criteria of a type is, does it occur in history? Okay? In other words, as we think about something being a type that then is unfolded through Scripture, the first question is, does this occur in history? In other words, you're not going to have a type that occurs in some sort of um, kind of philosophical discourse or some sort of uh, poetic explanation of something. The second question, is the type itself looking forward? Does it seem like there's something within the type itself when it occurs that looks forward to something in the future? And then the final is, is it developed later? In other words, one of the things that can help us spot types in the Old Testament is asking the question, did the Old Testament writers see this as a type even within the Old Testament itself? Okay? So, if we think about our reference, Exodus 12.46, does it occur in history? Does God give this instruction to not break the Passover lamb's bones? Is this instruction given in an actual historical event? Yes, right? Does the instructions... Um, have an aspect to uh, do the instructions have an aspect to it that look forward to the future? I think so because you're actually uh, setting a precedent for a festival that you will observe every year from this point forward. I think right in the DNA of the Passover festival is this instruction that looks forward. Then the third question is it developed later? And I think we see that, both in Numbers, where it's mentioned again, but really, especially in Psalm 34, where David seems to see this as a type. Okay? So then... Jesus is is the sacrificial lamb also. Right. So, once we leave the Old Testament, if we can answer these questions about something, then we feel fairly confident that we have something in the Old Testament that is a type. Okay? As we're moving to the New Testament, something interesting happens in John's Gospel. John records for us in excruciating detail the final hours of Jesus' life, how he gets dragged out of the city, how he gets nailed to the cross, and we kind of watch with him as Jesus breathes, um, struggles for breath, and then finally breathes his last. Then John tells us what seems to be some strange information. He says that the soldiers then were coming to take the bodies off of the cross because the religious leaders uh, didn't want the bodies hanging there, especially, well, they didn't want the bodies hanging there on the Sabbath, but especially because this was a special holy day, a high day for their celebrations. In fact, this was the Passover that they were getting ready to celebrate. 
if you notice, the other Gospels say that the Passover occurred on the night before Jesus was crucified, right? That's the meal that Jesus eats with his disciples. But in John's Gospel, he says the religious leaders were getting ready to celebrate a Passover then. Some people will say, well, there's a contradiction between them. I don't think necessarily. You see, when the Passover was instituted, it was a family celebration. You do it inside your house. And yet, later on in history, I think we maybe even talked about this last week, later on in history, you have nationwide Passover celebrations. Does the nationwide Passover celebration replace the family celebration? I don't think so. I think you still celebrate as a family, and then maybe you have a big celebration together with everybody. And so, perhaps the one that John's talking about is this major celebration, all of the nation coming together to remember the Passover. And at the same time, uh, as they're preparing for this, Jesus is being crucified. And so, they start to take the bodies off the cross, but some of them haven't died. And so, they start breaking the legs of the criminals in order to make them die faster. Well, they come to Jesus, and he was already dead. And then John says that they took, the, they took a spear and they pierced his side and out of his side blood and water flowed. And then he says, he who saw this testifies that it is true. And then, thus the scripture was fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Now, if we don't know our Old Testament, we flip back to Exodus chapter 12 and we say, John... What were you doing? This isn't talking about Jesus. This is talking about a lamb. The Passover lamb. This is not a passage predicting the coming of Jesus. It's a passage about the Passover lamb. And I think John would look at us and say, Ah, but you don't understand what I'm doing. You see, John was fully aware of his Old Testament. He knew his Old Testament way better than any of us, right? And I think he understood this basic idea that there were types within the Old Testament itself, certain symbols within the history of Israel that pointed forward to a greater reality. And when he sees the blood coming from Jesus' side, whose bones have not been broken, he recognizes this is the ultimate Passover lamb. And at the same moment that all of the people in the nation of Israel are killing Passover lambs to remember the Passover in Egypt. At that very moment, the Lamb of God is crucified on a cross. He pours out His blood for all of us. And John says, I'm not just telling you what happened, I'm, I'm telling you what it means. Right? He's giving us all of this just by quoting one verse from the Old Testament. So then Jesus becomes the anti-type of which the Passover lamb is the type. Does this make sense? And the other verse he quotes immediately after that uh, is he says, well, it's from Zechariah, um, chapter 13. Um, I forget his, we've got to look at it now. I forget the wording of what he says. Ah, yes. And another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Yeah. Uh, this actually comes from, uh, not from Zechariah chapter 13. This comes, let me make sure I'm right here, Zechariah chapter 12. Yeah. Zechariah 12 verse 10. Uh, 
which is interesting. Just a couple verses later in Zechariah, it talks about a fountain being opened on that day. What day? Well, the day that they look on the one that they have pierced. On that day, a fountain will be opened for all of the people to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. What did John just say he saw? Blood, the Passover lamb, and water, the fountain that will be opened from Zechariah chapter 13. So I think John is, is quoting these two Old Testament passages to point to the reality of, of um, what is happening when Jesus dies on the cross. It's the significance of the event that he's trying to point to. Okay. And so, I know this is maybe a little bit confusing for us. Uh, I prefer to see fewer things as types in the Old Testament than others would. Um, In my opinion, I think the New Testament can be our guide to help us figure out what is a type and what is not. So I would prefer to kind of see these criteria driving our definition of what is a type. This, to me, is one of the clearest examples of typology where we look and see this is how John is saying we need to read our Old Testaments. Questions about the use of the Passover lamb and some of this imagery? Okay, then we're going to move on. So, a few of the questions. Um, I'll just try to talk about these quickly here. Uh, So, here's one of the questions. Is there any historical reference in Egyptian history to the death of the firstborn? It's a great question. Um, The short answer is no, as far as I know. Uh, you have a wide range of theories about when these events in the Exodus actually occurred. Um, I was actually just this afternoon uh, watching a part of a documentary made several years ago, about 10 years ago, on Exodus. Um, And they were claiming that it was 1500 BC, which is actually earlier than uh, a lot of conservative scholars will say. They're saying, Even earlier than that, the Exodus occurred around 1500. You have some other scholars who will say, no, it's probably more like 1200 BC. So you have about a 300-year time span that people think the Exodus could have happened. The problem is, no Egyptian documents seem to say, well, we we oppressed these people called the Israelites, um, But then we were really arrogant, and so God, their God, uh, basically destroyed our economy and proved once and for all that there was no God but Him. And so they left, and and really when, when the Israelites left, they left us completely and totally devastated as a nation. No one, like, wrote that in their history, you know, of what happened during their reign. And of course we wouldn't expect them to. Right, You would expect a humiliated pharaoh to whitewash his past and his history. So it becomes a little bit of a circular argument, I understand. Uh, you know, Some liberal scholars would say there's no proof of the exodus in ancient history. Well, okay, I don't know that there's any proof that says it never happened. I think it actually did happen. Uh, it just is difficult to pinpoint... When did this actually take place? Several people have their personal theories about when they think happened, like this documentary I was watching. You've probably seen it. I think it was on the History Channel or something. 
you know, trying to piece together different um, bits of data from all throughout Egyptian history, saying, well, here's this piece that seems to suggest that uh, the Israelites were these, you know, these types of people that is talked about in ancient documents. Here's this that proves that Jacob, the son of Jacob, was actually ruling over some of the Egyptians at this period in time. So anything you do, you have to pull from several different areas and just try to kind of piece the puzzle together. I don't feel like up to this point, I've heard a convincing argument of anyone who said, this is the proof, this is when the Exodus actually happened. So the short answer, which maybe I should have just stopped it, no, there's no evidence for um, all the firstborn dying. But it's, it's just, it's a complicated answer. And, you know, people who think they know the answer are really passionate about knowing the answer. But the reality is, a lot of what we do is just speculation and trying to connect dots between things that aren't there. One of those perspectives may actually be right, okay? But we just don't have a ton of data to go on, so it's hard to know anything conclusively, okay? Another question about that was, uh, what was the time span of the plagues? And I think probably the plagues happened over the course of about a year. Some of the indications about when, like what was being harvested at that time or what was going on at that time um, seems to suggest maybe not quite a year, but over a relatively long period of time. Okay. Feel free to ask follow-up questions if I'm like addressing your question and then not answering it. So, Okay. We talked about in Exodus chapter 12, the destroyer. If you remember this from last time, um, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, which sure makes it sound like the Lord is doing the one, the Lord is the one doing the destroying. But then it says later in the verse, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow, the ESV says, the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So is it the angel of death? Is it the destroyer? Or is it God himself? Is it Satan? Uh, is it Satan? Ooh, that's a good one. I don't, well, I don't think it's what we would consider as Satan. Um, although in the Old Testament, Satan, the person with the name Satan, which is perhaps more of a designation than actually a, a name, uh, always serves at God's bidding. So it wouldn't, I guess, be too out of the question for Satan to be involved. Um, but I do think in the Old Testament you have angels that are so closely associated with God that you can speak of angels and then also speak of God as if it's almost the same. We saw this in Exodus chapter 3. The angel was in the bush and yet God spoke from the bush. So was the angel there or was God there? Yes, right? The angels, uh, the angelic visitors come to meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, and then God speaks. Well, was it the angels there or was it God there? I'm just not sure you can draw sharp lines of distinction between them. And so I think God is the one who's striking, but perhaps it is his angel or this destroyer who's doing, doing that work. Yeah. Show up periodically, 
periodically. When's the point when that kind of stops? Like, I don't think it's stopped yet. I think we still have angels. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the New Testament does talk about, right, uh, entertaining angels. You have, really, at the end of the Old Testament, in Daniel, you have angels still on the scene. And then if you think about the birth of Jesus, uh, you know, there's cer- angels certainly seem to be very involved there. The, as Jesus ascends to heaven, angels are very involved in that. Angel comes and gets Peter out of prison. So you do have angels very present um, throughout the New Testament. So... Yes, indeed. That's a good question. Anybody know where that is? I don't know off the top. Hebrews 13.2. Hebrews 13.2. You said it so confidently. I I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know. It's very true. Yeah. Is there an actual angel of death, capital letters, not angel of death, you know, just a, you know, just a, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, this is the angel of death, not, hey, these are angels of death. Well, the text doesn't say the angel of death here in Exodus 12, verse 23. It just says the destroyer. Okay. But you hear people referring to the angel of death a lot. Right. So. Perhaps that's not the best biblical name yeah, I was gonna for say, I it. I remember ever seeing it than any translation I had read. Right, right, yeah. You know, after the tornado in Joplin, so many of the kids saw butterflies Hmm. when there couldn't have been any butterflies. Everything was swept away. And I don't know. I don't know what everybody else thinks, but I know what I want to believe. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty, we weren't here during the tornado, but it was amazing to hear some of these stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now all over Joplin, you see the metal metal butterflies put up. Yeah. I think that's pretty great. Yeah. Okay, the next question I had, were there any Egyptians who wanted to repent? And would they have been allowed to come along with the Israelites if they had repented? That's a good question. I'm not sure. The text doesn't really say, does it? And so, perhaps anything we do is speculation. Um, Let me just offer perhaps something to help us think about it. I think in the ancient world, they, there was a lot stronger sense of national identity rather than individual identity. So we are very individualistic, and we have our free will, and we make our decisions, right? And I'm not sure it was so much that way in the ancient world. Your identity was tied to your people that you were a part of, right? And so, um, would it be possible then for someone who identifies with the nation of Egypt to to join the Israelites on their way out of Egypt. I suppose, theoretically, if they would be willing to associate themselves with the God of the Hebrews, then perhaps such a thing could happen. We see the story of Rahab. She seems to align herself with the God of the Hebrews. So perhaps something like that could happen. At the same time, I think it's very odd, and it would be rather unexpected. Um, I was trying to think of a good parallel, 
and I couldn't come up with one. So this is the best I got. Uh, it w I think it would be like, uh, so if there was perhaps a uh, uh, man from Mexico here illegally, and he was caught and was being deported, but you were his good friend. It would be like you, if you were an American with full American rights, giving up all of your American rights to be deported along with him back to Mexico. It's like, okay, but that is strange and odd, and I think people would write about that if someone chose to do that, right? And so I wonder if the reason we, the Bible records people like Ruth, who abandons her people to join Naomi's, people like Rahab, who joins the people of Israel, is because perhaps this was so rare and unexpected that the Bible records for us when people actually do leave their people and join with the people of Israel. Anyway, so, anyway, all of that, just speculation. Okay, a um, couple more questions here. Exodus 6.3, God appeared, but didn't make himself known. And I, I think uh, what this person was asking is where it says, Exodus 6.3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So what is, how is he revealing himself then to Moses? Um, I think the idea was that God had revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, perhaps even using the divine name Yahweh, but not in the covenantal way that he is now relating himself to Moses. So when he appears to Moses as Yahweh, he's saying, I am the God of covenant, and that's what I'm going to do with you in your life. So, one other, a great question. Why did the magicians try to duplicate the plagues? Wouldn't it make more sense for them to take it back or remove it? Yes. I think that's kind of funny, right? It's like, frogs are coming up, and so the magicians made more frogs. This is a problem. The problem is that we have too many frogs, so why are you making more? Um, I do think it is pretty strange. Um, once we get to the fleas, uh, they're helpless, though, which always has cracked me up. Um, that's the point. Ah, oh, this is the finger of God. Um, and then there is one final question. Is the Jewish Passover always on April 10th, or does it float like Easter? Yes, it floats like Easter, um, much the same way. It's in the spring, generally in March or April, uh, but a long time ago they kind of said, okay, well, it will only be after this certain harvest, when this crop harvests, then we'll observe the springtime of the year. So, okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, is this the only time that the destroyer is mentioned in the Bible? That is a great question. I'd have to look through my notes again on that word and see if it's used other places. I think it's the only place in Exodus that we have it referring, seeming to refer to an entity, a person or something. But I'll have to check that and I can get back to you. Yeah. I, I have a question in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 38. Whenever they were leaving, it said a mixed crowd also went up with them. What is the mixed crowd? <clears throat> I don't know if anybody Very interesting. has a different version if it might. It's, uh, chapter 12. 12.28 is what she's talking about. She says, who's the mixed multitude or the mixed crowd in Exodus 12.28? It's a great question. 
Could it be the Egyptians? I wonder if some did. Your says the Egyptians? Oh, it does. Interesting. What verse again did you say? Twelve thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. Okay. Thirty-eight. I I think I said twenty-eight, but it's thirty-eight. This translation says rabble. Rabble. Mine just says many other people. Yeah, many other people. Hmm. So, <clears throat> perhaps, yeah, maybe it's not just Israelites. Maybe it's Israelites and other peoples who had been enslaved with them. Um, I don't know. It could be the Egyptians, I suppose, but I think the text would say Egyptians, and it actually doesn't say Egyptians, that's not the word it uses. So, yeah. Perhaps these are other people who are dwelling there in the land and they join along with Israel and go up with them. Could have some of the midwives been Egyptians? Possibly. Yeah. yeah. So they and their houses, whom God has blessed, they join maybe with, with them. Yeah, very good. Great question. Anyone else? Okay, so let's pick it up then in Exodus chapter 13. We'll see how far we can get tonight. I don't know if we'll make it all the way to chapter 18. It's a little ambitious, but uh, we'll, we'll see how we can do. Chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, well, that's verse 1, verse 2, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beasts, is... Mine. Consecrate to me. Make holy. Set apart for me. The only uh, other word that this is uh, talked about in this way so far in the Bible was the seventh day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. God set apart or consecrated the seventh day and made it holy. So, there is a sense in which uh, the firstborn belongs to the Lord. I think, actually, in large part uh, owing to this reality of the Passover lamb. You have now God using this testimony continually in the nation of Israel that you will always redeem your firstborn because I rescued you from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This phrase is used 13 times, each time emphasizing God's work in the Exodus. God led you out of the house of slavery. And because of that, by a strong strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. So then, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you into the land of all of these people, you shall keep this service in this month. He's reminding them, once again, the importance of observing these festivals. They will continue to observe them from this point forward. As it goes on, right, as Moses is giving them all of these instructions, he says towards the end of it, 
verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. This shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is, um, I think, like the, the things that you often see in New Testament depictions of Jesus. I don't know if you watch you know, movies or TV shows or even dramatic reenactments of the story of Jesus. You'll see the Pharisees with boxes right on their wrists or on their heads. Right, We would call them phylacteries. That's, this whole custom began with some passages like this here. Right, where but actually Moses isn't saying you will write them between your eyes, okay? But he's saying it will be like a mark on your hand, or like like frontlets between your eyes. In other words, it will be so it needs to be so noticeable for you that you never forget it. Like you've got something tattooed on your hand, or you've got something stuck between your eyes. Right, you won't be able to forget it. You'll always remember. This is how important this, fest- this, this festival, really, that God initiated here, and the remembrance of it. That's how important this will be for all of their lives. How often, I put on your paper there, God wants them to set physical reminders of historical events, proof of the great salvation that he had worked. And so, verse 17, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. Now God, he has a plan here. He doesn't let the people of Israel know his plan, which is going to create some problems here in a little bit. But we get in on God's thinking here. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Well, it's not going to take the people very much to change their minds, right? But he doesn't want them to face war. And so, he leads them around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Actually, in the the original text, it just says the Sea of Reeds. Um, It doesn't say the Red Sea. We know it as the Red Sea, so we call it the Red Sea. And that's okay. If you want to call it the Red Sea, I'm going to call it the Red Sea. But just so all of us know, in the Hebrew it says the Sea of Reeds. So... Yes, but uh, my Bible says Red Sea too. Yeah, the Hebrew text, which all all of our Bibles are translated from, actually reads the Sea of Reeds. That's, That's all I'm trying to say. And so, what is the Sea of Reeds? Well, I think it's probably the Red Sea, what we know today as the Red Sea, okay? Um, But that's not actually what the text, the original text, that's not exactly the words it uses to describe this body of water. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, it's Yam Suf in Hebrew, and so that would be the Sea of Reeds or the Sea of Suf or whatever. And so, as he's leading them, Moses didn't forget Joseph. Remember, Joseph made, I don't know if you remember, this was back in Genesis, right? But Joseph made them promise that he would take up his bones, and so they bring his bones and they get out into the wilderness. In verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart 
from before the people. I don't know what you picture here, but I, I picture something kind of like a dark cloud. Perhaps this is what surrounded Sinai once they actually get to Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. But perhaps this like dark cloud that like, looks like it's on fire underneath all of that darkness. So during the day, it looks like a pillar of cloud. And then at night, when it gets dark all around, they see this fire blazing forth from the midst of it. It's pretty incredible that the people actually know where God is leading them by following a cloud. Like, sometimes I just wish God would do this. Right? Don't you? Like, God, will you lead me? Just like you did the people coming out of Egypt. Like, there was no question as to where they should go. And they still complained. I'm sure I would probably complain too, because maybe I wouldn't like where God would lead me. But... How incredible is it, this picture? I think this is actually maybe even the picture that David is thinking of. Sometimes in the Psalms, when he writes, God, God, will you lead me? Will you guide me? Will you direct me? I, I wonder if he's picturing something like this. Will you make it so clear that I know you are right in front of me and I'm following right after you, going exactly where you want me to go? And so chapter 14 Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. Now, if you're among the people of Israel, you might be getting a little bit grumpy right now, right? I mean, they left left Egypt feeling pretty good about themselves. But now they're turning back in the wilderness and and camp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And, what's the reason? Verse 3, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. I like what Douglas Stewart says in his commentary, All this constituted a divine ruse to trap Pharaoh one last time. God is tricking Pharaoh. However, the people of Israel don't know the master plan. And so, it creates a little bit of an issue for them. Pharaoh will say, uh, they're wandering, the wilderness has shut them in. How would he know this? Well, I think perhaps that uh, Pharaoh has scouts all throughout the land. He sees them and knows what they're doing. He gets reports back to him all the time, I'm sure. Hey, this army... Uh, is marching across in this place. This people is moving across in this region. And so, as he's getting these reports, he's, hey, the Israelites, just so you know, they're marching from here to here. Hey, just so you know, the Israelites are here to here. Well, now, all of a sudden, they're turning back. Why did Pharaoh let the people of Israel go? Well, because he thought their God, Yahweh, is more powerful than any of the gods here in Egypt. We are helpless against him, and if... The people stay here, surely all of us will be dead. But then, they go into the wilderness, and they're just wandering in circles. Their God must have left them. I'm sure it's what he's thinking, right? And so, what does God say? I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Notice God is stepping again into history to assure that his people will have 
the victory. He says, uh, I will get glory. I think God, there's all sorts of uh, plays on words here that God is using. Uh, the word for glory is this word actually that we saw as one of the words for uh, make heavy or harden Pharaoh's heart. So he says, I will be heavy in Pharaoh's eyes because I harden his heart. He uses a different word for harden here. Uh, but I think it's, it's a little bit of a play on words, him saying what he's going to do among the people. And so the end result is a recognition. They, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so, verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people, of, the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us? We had all this free, cheap slave labor, and we just let them go. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. Maybe they were so preoccupied mummifying and burying their dead that they didn't have much time to think about all of the Israelites leaving. But I wonder if now, some time after they have left, if this kind of mummification process for some of them, this mourning process is complete, if now they're thinking, wait a second, what have we done? Nothing has been accomplished in the last 40 days since these Israelites left. What were we ever thinking? Letting them go. And so, um, he decides, let's bring them back. He tethers the horse to the chariot himself. This is not something that a king normally does. Uh, 2 Kings 9.21 is a reference where you have, no, someone else is supposed to do that. You have, that is assigned to someone else, right? They get the chariot ready. Well, no, this verse, Pharaoh gets the chariot ready. I think it's suggesting he is ready to move and he is ready to go and capture the Israelites. And so he takes 600 chosen chariots, all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued the people of Israel while they were going out defiantly. Um, Briefly, in verse 7, he takes the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. This seems to be um, perhaps, I'm not quite sure who this is referring to, but it might be like a third man in the chariot. This uh, one who is kind of commanding, you have the perhaps the one who's driving the chariot and then the one who's fighting within the chariot or shooting arrows, and then you have the commander that's riding in the chariot. So he, he's got all of these sharp officers with him that are all chasing after them. And then in verse 8, you have this contrast within the verse. You have Pharaoh's bold actions versus the people's bold actions. They were going out, it says, with a high hand. Isn't that interesting? That's the uh, phrase that the ESV translates defiantly. How does your version translate that? The people of Israel went out defiantly or with the high hand. Boldly. Boldly. Anyone else? Marching boldly. Okay, with boldness. Okay. Uh, This only occurs three times in the Old Testament. In Numbers 33, verse 3, and the number... Um, And then in Numbers 15, verse 30, where the reference is to uh, deliberate sin, it says, if anyone sins with a high hand, 
If you sin boldly, in other words, you know what you're doing and you do it anyway, right? Not an accidental sin, but a defiant sin or a bold sin. Well, the people of Israel are going out boldly, defiantly, with a high hand, kind of, hey, look at us. Take that, Pharaoh and all you Egyptians. Watch us march out of your land and into freedom. And yet, they don't realize that Pharaoh and his horses are chasing after them with perhaps just as much, if not more, boldness in what they are doing. At this point, though, verse 8, there seems to be no no sense of the people questioning God. Right? They're coming out with a high hand. They're walking out boldly. They are not saying, God, are you sure this is a good idea? God, are you sure we should be doing this? Leaving Egypt? I mean, I don't know. Pharaoh may not like this. Of course not. They're happy. They're excited. They're rubbing it in. And yet, it all dissolves pretty quickly here. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horses, horsemen and his army. And they overtook them and camped by the sea, by Pihaharoth, in front of Baal Zephon. Um, I think the repetition of the place reminds the reader of the predicament that Israel is now in. I mean, you don't, if you don't know how this ends, you can sense the tension building, right? They overtake them. What? They overtake them. They actually reached, they actually reached them? Well, yes, they did. Yeah. It makes you wonder if the Israelites didn't say, Moses, didn't you know there's a sea up there? <laughs> you know, we might get through there, but what are we going to do if we get there? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think probably what happened is the Israelites weren't, they weren't thinking the Egyptians were going to come after them. And so I think they're just feeling the freedom of the deliverance from bondage. They're excited about what this means for them. They finally have days where they don't have to work incessantly, you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, just all of a sudden, without warning, there is Pharaoh's army. And at that point, I think they're thinking, what were you thinking, Moses, bringing us to a sea on one side when this army is on the other? Now, here's where it all changes, right? Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold... This word behold in the Old Testament is kind of funny. Um, it, it, in English, just sounds kind of, I don't know, kind of churchy and formal. Behold. But I think it's, in Hebrew, a little more shocking than that. It's, it's usually used as a shocking change in perspective, is, is what you have. So, they looked and, oh, there they were. Right? Oh, my word. Goodness gracious. What are we going to do now? Fill in whatever you want to for behold, but some sort of shock and utter surprise at what has happened. And behold, there the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. They thought the Egyptians were gone forever, and now they are here. And so, verse 11, they said to Moses... I love this. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Oh, it's kind of funny, right? High hand, verse 8, and verse 11, they're freaking out. Absolutely. Were there no graves in Egypt? Sarna notes, this rebuke to Moses is a piece of bitter irony. For Egypt, with its death-obsessed religion, was the classic land of tombs. There are more tombs in Egypt than anywhere else that I've ever been. And they say, were there no tombs in Egypt? Were there no graves there that you had to bring us out here to the wilderness to die? Moses, what are you thinking? Whoever told you this was a good idea? We don't want to leave. We want to stay in Egypt. We told you, Moses. Didn't you hear us? Didn't you hear us talking to you back there in Egypt? We were like, Moses, we like this life. No, don't talk to Pharaoh because we like our slavery. We enjoy making bricks without straw given to us. No, they never said this, right? And yet all of a sudden, when the reality bumps up against them, they begin to question everything. Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? I told you, Moses. Right? This kind of actually sounds like what Moses said to God. Right? I told you, God. Except Moses was right. The people aren't right. Uh, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. No, you didn't say that. Right? Oh, I just think that's hilarious. Didn't we say this to you? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I put there on your paper. Now, the people begin to redefine their recent experiences. I mean, maybe they said this in Egypt. Maybe they did. We just don't have any record of it. Stuart notes, faced with what they believed to be their imminent death, they redefined their recent history. Good thing we never do that, right? (laughs) So happy about certain things or the way things go. And then, when something terrible happens, when the negative consequences begin to come, oh, why did that ever happen? That's not what I really wanted. (sighs) Yeah, it is, right? So they redefine their recent history, verse 13, and Moses said to the people, Poor Moses, right? This guy, he gets it all throughout the book. And he said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. All they have to do is to fear not and stand firm. Stand firm. Get ready for the most spectacular display of God's power that you have ever seen in your lives. I put on your paper there, the Israelites can't see God's perspectives. They don't know that God is intending to trap Pharaoh one more time. They don't understand his plan to bring them through the Red Sea. And their inability to see the plan of God, but perhaps it's this, their inability to trust the plan of God is what gets them into trouble. And unfortunately, us as well. Right? We think we can see the whole picture, perhaps just like the Israelites thought that they could see the whole picture. 
I mean, what other possible alternative can there be when there's a sea on one side and a charging, angry army on the other? And it's not like this is some foreign army that they are totally unfamiliar with. Oh no, they've spent quite a bit of time under the hand of the Egyptians. They know exactly what these people do and how they respond to those who subvert their authority. They know what's in store for them. They can't see a way forward and they question everything. And yet, Moses' words are perhaps words we need to hear so frequently in our lives when maybe we want to freak out on the inside or on the outside because of what's happening in the circumstances that surround us. Perhaps we need to hear these words. Fear not. Stand firm. Right? They think about Paul's words. Ephesians chapter 6. Right? We are not aware of the enemy's schemes. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But what are we supposed to do? Just stand. Sure, you put on the full armor of God, which is God's armor, by the way, and not yours. He's just letting you borrow it. Right? You put on God's armor, but you just stand. And after you do everything, you just stand. Right? Because God is the one who fights the battle. Right? We just stand. And so, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. This may be the Old Testament, but that has not changed, brothers and sisters. The Lord fights for us. The Lord will fight for you, and then I love this, you have only to be silent. Just close your mouths and watch what happens, right? The Lord is the one who will win the battle. The victory is his. The people just have to keep their mouths shut. And us too, right? Sometimes we just, we just need to close our mouths and trust that God's going to work and trust what he's going to do and trust in his plan. And so it is pretty spectacular what happens. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Like, what are you thinking? Come on. Don't just sit there. Don't just complain, right? I've got a plan. Let's make it happen. Instead of waiting around and complaining, the people need to act. Okay? This is an order for action, not an order to sit around and just stress out about what needs to occur. And so, the people see themselves as lost, they see themselves as in a pretty desperate situation. God's, God's plan is altogether different. But God will require them to stand up and walk. Right? So, okay, you've got to work with me, guys. All right? Stop freaking out. Take a deep breath. Now stand up, pick up your things, and let's walk. We're walking. All of us, we're walking towards the sea. Okay? Here we go. You can see Moses trying to tell the people, let's go. Come on. We don't have time to sit around. And so, they begin to break camp. Um, in fact, the, the words here seem to suggest, the words go forward seem to suggest actually um, like you're breaking camp and setting off for something. Other places it's used in the Old Testament. So, I think the idea is 
pack up all of your stuff and get out as soon as you possibly can. Lift up your staff, this is to Moses now, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Which makes you wonder, right? Moses was like, wait a second, would you say that one more time, right? I'm supposed to do what? Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. All sorts of things happening in that verse that are not natural, right? This is all then enacted through the staff of Moses. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will get glory. There's our word again. I will become weighty or heavy or uh, the same word for hardened, right? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen, no longer will they be able to say with Pharaoh, Who is the Lord? Remember this, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Moses says, Let my people go, so they can go worship Yahweh in the wilderness. Pharaoh replies, Who is, who is Yahweh? Never heard of him. All of that is about to change. Not just for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's come to realize who Yahweh is, right? But it's going to change for all of the people of Egypt. All of them will know who the Lord is and will no longer be able to claim that they don't understand or know Him. They will see firsthand the power of the Lord. And so, first, Israel departs. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it picks up and sort of moves to the back, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. This keeps them separated from each other so that they can get across the Red Sea. There was the cloud and the darkness that lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided." And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea. That, should not end, that sentence should not end well. Right? The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The waters are split open, cleaved open. They burst apart. And the people of Israel walk through the middle of it. And yet, then verse 23, the Egyptians pursued. And they went in after them, into the midst of the sea. Their hardened hearts lead them into the heart of the sea. Verse 24, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily once again, this is the same, uh, the same word, uh, heavy or glory. They drove heavily. Um, and so, as they're going, perhaps they're, they're trying to turn and their chariot wheels are breaking off or uh, perhaps they're just getting stuck somehow in the dry ground underneath them. And so they say, uh, let us flee, verse 25, before Israel, For the Lord fights for them. 
against the Egyptians. Now they've come to know, haven't they? That the Lord is a warrior who will fight the battle and in the end win. Verse 26 The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over us to see that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses does it, right? He stretches his hand out over the sea and it returns to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. So perhaps they turn to flee in the direction from which they had come and yet then the waters come crashing on top of them as they go. The waves returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Complete annihilation of the Egyptian army is emphasized. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea as a contrast to what happened to the Egyptians. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I'm not sure Pharaoh was one of the ones who died in the crashing of the Red Sea as it came back upon them. It doesn't specifically say that he was one of the ones who went in. It says all who went in perished. But is it possible that some of them stayed back? I I think it's certainly possible. And Pharaoh could have been one of those who stayed back. Verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. It's a little bit graphic, but what a powerful image. Right? The Lord saved Israel. He, the Hebrew word is yasha. It's the same word that we get the noun from, salvation. Yeshua. The Lord saved Israel. On that day, from the hand of the Egyptians, can you imagine? Can you imagine the the impact this must have had on them, as they are literally watching their captors wash up dead on the shore just below them. This for them is a sign forever. Before they thought maybe they'd be free from the Egyptians, but then the Egyptians appeared. Now they know this is over. Always and forever, we are done being slaves in Egypt and we will not go back. You can imagine the power that this has on their mindset as this begins to really sink in. Sink in, right? Thank you for that. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And what happened? This is powerful. So the people, what? They feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They just jump back and forth, don't they? They sure do. Yes. She says they just jump back and forth, don't they? One day they do, one day they don't. Well, one hour they do, and one hour they don't, right? Yeah. 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 But I think there's 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 a powerful message here. God seems to make it a priority 
to display His might and His power in the eyes of His people. Because what God is after is a people who will first and foremost fear Him. In fact, this is, I think, the foundation of what becomes a message in the book of Exodus, then really we see it strongly in the book of Deuteronomy. It is not a message of, do this and you will live only. Instead, the message goes something like this. You read and or hear the message of God. And you fear. And then, once you fear, then you do. And then you live. Hear, fear, do, and live. We frequently want to say, do and live. You do this and you will live. But that's not the way that God presents himself, or even presents what we could call the gospel that we're about to read in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 and the verses that follow. The message seems to be, you hear the message, you hear what God has to say, but then you see him work. And when you actually behold the power of God, you cannot help but be scared to death. (laughs) Right? Like The people were, here in a little bit, Exodus chapter 19, the people are literally shaking (laughs) at the foot of the mountain. They are afraid that if this continues, they will die. Just because they're standing in the presence of God. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but God reflects on that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and he says, oh, oh, that my people would be like that always. That they would fear me. Because then their obedience would not be just obeying a set of rules, but they would obey me because they see me for who I am. And that, it's a response to that. Then they will live. So I think that's just a snapshot of, of where we're headed as we move into parts that we would call the law of the book of Exodus. I think we need to see some of these pieces at play. Yeah. Well, we're taught to love God, but it seems like they're taught to fear Him. I'm not I sure... I don't ever see love mentioned anywhere yeah. in this. I don't... Moses, I'm, he has a good relationship, but it doesn't say ever that he loves him. Yeah. Well... I think he does. Um, and you have Deuteronomy 6, 4, which becomes kind of the foundational text for the Jewish people. Here, we call it the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And I think there's a reason this becomes kind of the central piece, because I think it sums up the whole of their experience. Um, I think it actually sums up what God expects from his people, this idea of love. Um, it's not, for, for them, I don't think love is just this kind of warm feeling. I think it's a whole disposition of, of love. You will show that you love by the way that you act. I think for God, he's concerned that his people get to a place of fearing him because once they do, I think then love follows. Once they... Once they fear God and then actually hear what he has to say to them in Exodus chapter 19, I think that changes everything. I mean, a God who, a God who can literally part the sea, step into history and save you from your captivity, drown your captors before your eyes, 
that God is going to turn around and say to them in Exodus chapter 19, I brought you on eagle's wings to myself. I mean, it's this incredible expression of love. And so you see the people kind of overwhelmed, I think, and responding with a love to a God who does something like that. Yeah. Kind of like being a child. You're young, you fear getting in trouble. Hmm. And as you get older, you respect and love your parents. You don't want to get in trouble. Yes, right. Yeah. And, yeah, you'd be afraid of perhaps what would happen as you get older if you did choose to defy them in one way, shape, or form. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're always afraid of them as in trembling before them. I think there is perhaps a piece of fearing the Lord that does involve shaking in His presence. If we've never shook in His presence, perhaps we haven't really learned to fear the Lord. Because he's terrifying and awesome and powerful, right? But there also is a sense of of a reverence here where we also respect. You can't just tremble in his presence and be afraid that he's this angry father who's going to zap you or something, right? There also is this, this terrible power that can wipe you off the face of the planet in a breath, yet who loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so... I think sort of all of that is wrapped up in this idea of the fear of the Lord. And of course, the writer of Proverbs and of all sorts of wisdom literature, it's all throughout the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where true wisdom begins. Yeah. Did you have a question back there? I just was going to say, fear kind of negative connotation in society. And mine says, my translation says, fear awe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. It's very good. I do think we've lost the reverence and the fear to the God. You know, I mean, we just think of him as a great friend. You know, mm-hmm. because, I mean, because of what Jesus has done, he is a friend, but we have somehow in our society lost that reverence and that fear of trembling before him. And so, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever I agree. Happens, happens, you know? Right, right. We're so demanding of him to do what we want done and for things to mm. go the way we want them to go. Yeah. And when they don't, then we're pretty upset with him. Yeah. And I, you know, Jesus is our friend and God is our friend, you know. So it's not that these things are untrue. But you read the Old Testament and people encounter God and he comes in thunder and fire and earthquakes and lightning. And it's a pretty normal thing that people who stand in God's presence think they're going to die. That's just true. And I don't think, I don't think that's the first thing that comes into our mind when we think standing in the presence of God. And so perhaps there is a bit of this that we need to say, Lord, help us to stand in your presence and, and, and tremble because of who you are. Not because you're, we're afraid you're going to kill us, but just because of your might and your majesty and your power. And if we see that, I think it it changes our perspective. And honestly, I think that changes our lives. Okay, we've got to draw. In a natural disaster, you would have, you would be, you know, if we were caught like the the tornado, Hmm. had we been right in that, then those are the things that would bring it to us Hmm. right on. Hmm. Yeah. Because they were in that spot where 
you know, by him opening up the sea, they were able to go through. Mm -hmm. But the enemy was right behind them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back on 911, everyone, it just, our nation just did like stop and go, wow, what's going on here? Hmm. And yeah. then that passed pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 All right. I'll let you all go. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.